everybody. Uh, welcome to Waking Up to Narcissism, episode 72. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, host of the Virtual Couch Podcast, and also co-host of Murder on the Couch, which is out now. And another thing that needs to be out is the gum that I am chewing. So let me do that. But if you stay tuned, after today's Waking Up to Narcissism episode, I'm going to play the first 20 minutes of the first episode of Murder on the Couch. And I'll include the links in the show notes, but I would love it. If you want to hear more, if you can go hit the subscribe or follow or wherever you get your podcast and and go sign up, listen to the rest of the episode. And if you want to see Sydney and I in action, I'll also put the link to the YouTube video of the episode. And if you happen to be poking around YouTube, then just hit that subscribe button on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. That would uh, that would be wonderful. And also while you're there, I've been continuing to, actually at Sydney, putting up a lot of free therapeutic advice, not to be mistaken for therapy, and that is in the form of YouTube shorts. So if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, the Virtual Couch YouTube channel, you'll get a lot of content there as well. A lot of things about narcissism and emotional maturity, but just a lot of mental health tips and thoughts and stories also. So today we are getting back to, we are now doing part two of exploring the five types of narcissists to look for. And last time I took a break between part one and today's part two to talk about the antagonistic attachment style of the narcissistic person. And that has still just been a concept that I cannot stop thinking about. And I mentioned it on the women's Facebook group last night, the group calls that are done weekly. And I mention that because now more than ever, if you are a man looking for a group, if you are waking up to your own emotional immaturity, maybe some narcissistic traits or tendencies, or you feel that you're in a relationship with a narcissistic fill in the blank, again, not a dirty, rotten, scoundrel version of fill in the blank, but a a spouse, a parent, adult child, institution, a, a boss, you name it, then boy, do I have the group for you. So reach out through contact at tonyoverbay.com and we'll get you on there. And then just if you sign up for the newsletter, that would be amazing because that's where we'll keep you up to date on so many things. So I think if there were three things, if there were three things that I would just love, if you like the podcast and you wanted to support Waking Up to Narcissism, then definitely go sign up for the subscription, the the subscription-based podcast. I was about to say the free subscription, kind of a oxymoron there, but the subscription-based podcast, $4.99 a month. And I answer, I go into question and answer mode and I'll have the links are all in the show notes. The other thing would be to go sign up and, and follow virtual and follow murder on the couch. And I guess the third thing would be to be nice, be nice to each other, especially yourself. Give yourself a lot of grace and kindness and uh, do the deep breathing thing, do some mindfulness, put a pause. And before you have responses, whether it's to the tiny narcissist in your life, AKA kids, or maybe the larger um, narcissist or emotionally immature people in your life, which could again be spouses, bosses, um, adult children, friends, neighbors, countrymen, you name it. But let's get to today's episode. So again, part two of looking at the five types of narcissists. And just for fun, I've been playing around with artificial intelligence, chat GBT, and I just asked, what is the Greek story of narcissists? I just thought it would be fun to just jump back in and let's talk about the history of narcissism because we're talking about the five types of narcissists. And I think what is pretty interesting is where we get pretty far away from the diagnostic and statistical manuals, diagnosis criteria of narcissistic personality disorder. When we start talking about narcissistic traits and tendencies, which is why I just go so big on the concepts around 
emotional immaturity. Because if you just go with the story, the Greek story of Narcissist is a mythological tale about a young man named Narcissist who was known for his exceptional beauty. The story goes that Narcissist was walking through the woods one day when he came across a pool of water. As he leaned over to take a drink, he saw his reflection in the water and he became enamored with his own beauty. Narcissus became so obsessed with his reflection that he refused to leave the pool, gazing at his his image for hours on end, and he was so entranced by his own reflection that he forgot to eat or drink and eventually wasted away and died by the side of the pool. So according to the myth, the gods took pity on Narcissist and transformed his body into a beautiful flower, which was later named the Narcissist. The story of Narcissist is often seen as a cautionary tale about the dangers of vanity and self-obsession. It has become a popular metaphor for the concept of narcissism, which is named after the character of Narcissist and refers to excessive self-love and self-absorption. So I think you can see where the tie-in, though, is when we are talking about extreme emotional immaturity, then it is it comes across as looking self-absorbed because it's definitely selfish. But instead of saying excessive self-love, I believe it's an absolute lack of self-love. So then the narcissistic person or the emotionally immature person doesn't even know what it feels like to love oneself. So they get their sense of self by exploiting and manipulating and sucking the, the life force out of other people. So while I was there with the with artificial intelligence, then I said, give a modern day story based off the Greek story of narcissist. And this is where I sound like such an old man. And just think this is pretty amazing. So I asked ChatGPT that to give a modern day story based off the Greek story of narcissist. And it did take about three or four seconds. So I can already see that at some point that is going to be a long time that it's going to be watching a watched pot and see thinking it's never going to boil. But it came back immediately with one modern day interpretation of the story of narcissist could be about a young social media influencer who becomes obsessed with her own image and the attention that she receives from her followers. The influencer named Sophia spends hours every day taking selfies, applying filters, and crafting the perfect captions for her posts. She obsesses over her appearance, constantly checking her reflection in the mirror, and comparing herself to other influencers in her field. As Sophia's following grows, she becomes increasingly fixated on her online persona, neglecting her relationships and other aspects of her life. She spends hours each day scrolling through her comments and responding to messages, basking in the praise and adoration of her fans. But eventually, Sophia's obsession with her own image begins to take a toll on her mental and physical health, and she becomes anxious and depressed when her posts don't receive as many likes as she had hoped, and her relationships with friends and family begin to suffer. So despite the negative effects of her obsession, Sophia is unable to pull away from the validation and attention she receives from her social media following. She becomes trapped in a cycle of self-obsession and narcissism, much like the character of Narcissus in the Greek myth. All of that was generated in just a couple of seconds from typing in a question about a modern day story based off of the Greek story of narcissist. Artificial intelligence is coming and it is, uh, it's pretty fascinating. It really is. It's uh, something that I feel the more we can embrace and learn to use it as a tool and not be afraid of it, then that can really be a good thing. So let's get back to these types of narcissism and where I left off last time was covering the antagonistic style, attachment style of the narcissist. And so there are two more that are left in this from, again, this is from the article of how many types of narcissism are there and how can you identify them? And this is from uh, the psych central article, which was written by, which is uh, medically reviewed by Jeffrey Ditzel and written by Courtney Telloian, and I will edit out my butchering of the first few versions of her last name. 
But we jump back in at number three. We've already covered then in the first episode, the overt narcissism. We also then talked about covert narcissism, and now we've hit on the antagonistic narcissistic style. So we have two left, and these are uh, pretty fascinating. One, I think uh, you maybe might not have heard of a lot of them, but the fourth one is communal narcissism. So communal narcissism is another type of overt narcissism, and it's usually seen as the opposite of antagonistic narcissism, where again, an antagonistic narcissism is based off of the biological concept of an antagonist which needs another organism to survive. So it just drains or sucks the life force out or uses the other organism as a way to then take the one-up position. But when we get to communal narcissism, someone with communal narcissism values fairness and is likely to see themselves, though, as altruistic. But research published in 2018 suggests that there's a gap between these beliefs and the person's behavior. So people with communal narcissism might become easily uh, morally outraged They might describe themselves as very empathetic and generous, and they may react strongly to things that they do see as unfair, but unfair meaning not going their way. Hard to then maintain that whole object relations or being able to maintain a connection or a relationship with somebody, even despite having a difference of opinion. So what makes the communal narcissism, the narcissist different from genuine concern for the well-being of others? Courtney said that the key difference is that for people with communal narcissism, social power and self-importance are playing the major roles. So she said, for example, while communal narcissism might cause you to say and believe you have a strong moral code or care for others, you might not realize the way that you treat others doesn't really match up with your beliefs. I did a little bit more digging and I came up with a few more concepts around communal narcissism. The, the person does seek admiration and attention, but they're seeking the admiration and attention through the acts of generosity and self, selflessness. So it can seem like, but the person is a good person. And if you have a casual relationship with the person, it may truly seem like this is one of the, the most altruistic and selfless people that you know. And, and this is that ironic thing that I get so many letters about, letters, emails about, direct messages about of people that say, my spouse has everyone in the world fooled except for me. And, but then they start to say, so maybe what's wrong with me? Cause I'm the one that doesn't think that everything that he's doing is coming from the place that he likes to think that it is from this pure generosity and altruism. So let me go through a couple of, uh, I've got four or five real examples. I try to come up with some examples of these. So one would be the volunteer who constantly brags about their charitable work and uses it to gain recognition and praise. Take, for example, uh, let's uh, have someone, we'll call him John, and he is a regular volunteer at a local food bank. But then this is that guy that always makes sure that everybody knows about his volunteer work and talks about it because he talks about it at every opportunity. As a matter of fact, whenever you see John, it gets pretty easy for you because you say, hey, how's life at the food bank? And then if John is up, let's say, uh, sharing um, an answer, even in a church class, a Sunday school class, they ask something about, hey, tell me one of your favorite uh, ones of the Beatitudes. And if he says, uh, blessed are the meek or something like that, he's like, you know who's meek? And everybody's thinking, the people at your food bank, John. And he said, people at my food bank. And then he posts pictures of himself working at the food bank on social media. And he gets upset if he doesn't receive enough likes or comments on his post because all of a sudden he thinks people don't understand how amazing I am. By this work at the food bank. He talks about how much he gives to the food bank, how much he sacrifices to help others, because he wants to be seen as a generous and selfless person. But in reality, he's doing it from a place of seeking recognition and praise from others. And, and I think you can see the, the little flip right there where that's where that deep insecurity comes from. 
So if he truly is altruistic and he wants to help because that's one of his core values as service or compassion or fairness or, or equity or equality, then if it really is a, a what it feels like to be John and it is part of who he is and the fiber of his being, he's gaining a tremendous amount of satisfaction through a sense of purpose and then doesn't need to continually tell people to make sure that he knows he's okay because people tell him he's okay. John needs to just know that he is okay and and he's doing amazing things at the food bank. There's another version of the communal narcissist, the self-proclaimed martyr who constantly sacrifices himself for the sake of others, but then still expects to be acknowledged and praised for their efforts. So an example here is somebody that will seem like the, the selfless giver and the selfless helper, but again, they're doing it to receive admiration from others. So let's just say that there is a mom, I don't know, we'll call her Tina. I've got Napoleon Dynamite on my head of where I think it was the llama, Tina, come get your ham. But Tina is a mother who always volunteers to help at school events, well, everything, bake sales, the jogathons, the fundraisers, which is amazing. My wife did amazing work helping out with our kids and doing the art docent stuff and the teacher's helper and going on the field trips. And it was just, I, I it, it was just warms my heart to think about that. But let's get back to Tina. Then she constantly talks about how much she sacrifices for her kids, how exhausted she is, constantly exhausted from all the work she does. And so Tina takes on more than she can handle. And then when others offer to help, she declines. And I had someone in my office recently talking about them continually trying to help, provide help for a spouse. And the spouse continually say, no, no, it's okay. I'll do it. And this person's saying, no, I literally have created the time and I want to help. No, it's, it's all right. I get it. I, I got to do all this work. So declining, saying that they are the only ones that they can do things right. Because in this scenario, Tina wants to be seen as the perfect mother who puts her children's needs first, but in reality is again, and this is where that, that emotionally immature or narcissistic person gets their sense of self through the validation, purely through the validation of others. So in this example, Tina is seeking admiration and attention from others. And this is what would be considered or called this communal narcissistic martyr. And she really does. She may genuinely compare, compare. She may genuinely care about her children and the community, but she's using her selflessness to gain the admiration and attention from others. Her need to be seen as the perfect mother and as the only one who can do things right. That's one of those red flags for the more emotional immaturity or maybe those narcissistic traits or tendencies. And the more I thought about it, I thought about that just bringing up something that's kind of interesting, I think, because I think that some of the pathologically kind people that will be listening to this episode will find any chance they can to say, wait a minute, I help at my kid's school. Is Tony calling me a narcissist? I am not. Again, the fact that you're even listening here and wondering that question means you're not. You really aren't. But I was uh, writing about when I'm trying to help people discover their values, because honest to goodness, discovering your core values, the process of, of uncovering your values is one of the biggest components of recovery. But it's one of those, we talked about this on the women's group last night, but it's one of those situations where it's hard to even understand what that means when you're so in the thick of trying to manage other people's emotions and trying to buffer for your kids and trying to just walk on eggshells and not say the air quote wrong thing. Because in reality, there isn't a wrong thing. There's a thing. And then we can have some curiosity about why one said what they did. But in that quest for values, that there are often people that will 
find themselves going toward on this list of values when I'm working with clients individually, there is a value of reciprocity, which means that people sometimes don't want, you know, they, they have a core value, which is values or not some ultimate destination, but it's a sense of being or, and doing that they want to be in mutually reciprocal relationships. And I think often it's because it might be somebody that has lived a life where people have just taken advantage of them continually. Now, if their core value is service, period, then the yeah, buts that will pop up in your brain are, well, yeah, but sometimes it might not be reciprocated. And in that scenario, then you start to work with the, oh, yeah, absolutely it might not. And that's not even a problem because that my core value is service. But if I have a core value of mutual reciprocity, then the yeah, buts might be, yeah, but the pool of friends might be a little bit uh, more shallow and not shallow as in shallow human beings, but there might not be as many. And then the, then we're not even arguing if that's a true or false statement because it isn't a productive thought if you are truly seeking out a value of reciprocity and friendships. So I think it's important that to point out that if people do want to be, is that the part where you do want to be in a mutually beneficial relationship or because I think the communal, this whole communal narcissism thing is more along the lines of I'm doing things for someone else so that they will maybe even owe me. And I hear so often the people that struggle to accept help from others because they worry that there will be strings attached because most of their life there truly has been strings attached. So another type of communal narcissist is the community leader who uses their position to gain admiration or attention. And it could be community leader. It could be church leader. It could be somebody who's uh, serving in a particular calling or position in church, but they're doing that to gain admiration and attention. And then they become angry or defensive when challenged or criticized. And I will tell you, honestly, I work a lot in the world of, of working with people that are in religious congregations. And I work with people that sometimes the concept is called a leadership roulette, where they can have one um, person, an ecclesiastical leader, who is a very kind, empathetic person who is selfless and who says, I am here to help, period. And then there are others that will run into people and that leader will say, you know what, this is what I think. And this is that this is what you're supposed to do. God himself has told me that you need to knock it off. You need to not continue to go to counseling. You need to just uh, pray and read your scriptures more. And if that doesn't work, something's wrong with you. So that can be really difficult. So that's the leader who uses their position to gain admiration or attention or control. And then they become angry or defensive when challenged. So there's an, another version of the communal narcissist that is the parent who uses their children's accomplishments to boost their own sense of self-worth and importance. And it's interesting because when I talk about the, my own emotional immaturity or waking up to those narcissistic traits or tendencies, some of these do. They start to hit a little bit close to home because I, I really am very proud of the accomplishments of my children and I do find myself wanting to share them. And, uh, and sometimes I have to do that self-confrontation of, am I sharing? Because I want people to think I am a wonderful father because look at what my kids have done. Or is it because I'm excited and, and I feel uh, from a healthy ego, which is again, it's, I talk about that concept so often, but a healthy ego is uh, something that comes from within inside and it's based off of real experience or real work. So honestly, sounds like a plug now. But the Murder on the Couch podcast is something where I never anticipated putting a true crime meets therapy podcast together with one of my daughters. And she's she's done the lion's share of the the editing, the recording, um, putting content out. And, and it's really good. And I had such a fun time. And we've already been getting some feedback about the our, our own back and forth or rapport and how much fun it is. So I am talking about that because I'm just so excited to share 
And, and I think truthfully, it's in the hopes that maybe others will say, oh my gosh, uh, not that I want to record a therapy meets true crime podcast with my daughter, but that it, it's a really neat experience to do things with your kids. And that takes a lot of work to build that. Look, then it sounds like I'm bragging, right? And I've put in all the hard work, uh, folks, but it does. It takes a lot of uh, work to, to self-confront, to not make things about you so you can provide that secure attachment to then hopefully help your kids start to recognize some of the things that they want to do and not this wasn't a me hammering her. You need to do this podcast with me, Sid. But if it's a she likes true crime, what if we did a podcast together? And now it's been just an, an amazing opportunity for me to self-confront and say at times I, I want to get in there and say, hey, we need to do it this often and we need to put this release schedule out and we need to like I've tried to do with my podcast. But this is uh, this is more of her journey. And so it's an opportunity for me to support, to build rapport, to bond and also to self-confront and figure out what are the things that I need to learn from this experience. And one of those is to step back and let go of some of that control even if that means that things might take a little bit longer or there might not be the consistency. And I don't even know if that's the case yet. So I just, I love that concept. So the yeah, the parent who uses their children's accomplishments to boost their own sense of self-worth and importance. Here's one that I think is really, really interesting. The therapist, I love that this is one of the examples that I, that I was able to find. The therapist who constantly reminds clients of their own personal experiences and achievements to gain credibility and admiration. Okay, we're getting a little too close to home now. So I was, I was thinking about this, do, does a therapist, and I think you can just see, it doesn't mean you have to be a therapist, but if you are just interacting with another human and do you share experiences to try and build rapport, maybe to normalize a situation so that person feels more heard and seen and understood or somehow to gain power or importance to get validation. So I did, I jotted down a few notes about this because I think I can look at different examples or an example with a client in my own situation where I can see all of these play out. So I had a brother pass away over 30 years ago and uh, I was recently talking with someone in my office who had also had uh, one of their siblings pass away. And this person was talking about some really big feelings. I want to maintain the confidentiality, the anonymity, the respect, because I, I love this client and the family. But I had a moment where I really think I saw all three of these concepts playing out of was I trying to then build rapport or to normalize a situation for this individual or or was I trying to do this to say, hey, uh, let me tell you my stories and I want you to validate me. And P.S. I'm getting paid to do it, which I hope that's not the case. And I don't think it was. So then let's just say that the person is saying that their siblings passing had not really set in yet and leaving a lot of the details off, of course. But while others around them were from a general sense saying that the, that they were, that this passing had in fact set in and the, if the person, my client then, so if I would have said, man, I have, I've heard similar stories during times of grief and loss where there isn't one way to grieve and that I really appreciated this person being in my office and being able to share these things because I really wanted to help this person feel a bit more air quote normal in the way that they're feeling because yeah, I could understand that if they really felt like, why hasn't this thing just hit me like a ton of bricks yet when it, it has been all the people around me? Cause then what's wrong with me? So at that point, then if I share with them that, man, you know what? I had a sibling pass away this 30 years ago. And I have to be honest, I really struggle with that as well. So not saying that I know exactly what you're going through, but I hear you at that point. Now I am reminding the client again, by definition of communal narcissism, I am reminding a client of my own personal experience and achievement, but is it to gain credibility and admiration in that scenario? And, and I really am the only one that truly knows my intent 
But just being aware, that self-awareness is saying, I'm really not, because I feel like I want to offer this as a way to say, I see you. Of course, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I'm grateful that you're here and I want to normalize. But having us both go through losing a, a sibling then at a at an early age then might be more about a bond, but then in comes the communal narcissist, then that would be me spending the next 10 minutes talking about when I got the news and what I did next and then how I helped the others around me through the death of my brother. But then while I was doing that, I hadn't grieved it and on and on because in that moment, then I would have moved from trying to truly bond and help to just, I just took somebody coming into my office to process the passing of a loved one. And by the end, I have them now telling me that they are so sorry with, of what I went through 30 years ago and how strong I am. So in, in summary, this communal narcissist, they seek admiration and attention by portraying themselves as selfless and generous and then using those, those qualities to gain status or recognition or their own validation. So we've got one more. The last type in these five types of narcissism, the malignant narcissist. This is the one we're more familiar with, I think. Narcissism can exist at different levels uh, of severity, and malignant narcissism is a more severe form, and it can also cause more problems for the person living with it. So malignant narcissism is more closely connected than back to this overt or out there, over-the-top narcissism than covert. So somebody with malignant narcissism may have many common traits of just narcissistic personality disorder, like this strong need for praise to be elevated above others. And in addition, malignant narcissists then often show up as vindictive. Some consider them, and this article talks about uh, sadists, sadism, where they actually get enjoyment from the pain of others. And that can just be really difficult to understand from the pathologically kind people, which will probably be most of the people listening to this episode. But then um, you're looking at it through your lens or what it feels like to be you. But then there are others that then they do. They, and you almost see this, uh, I don't want to say a gleam in their eye, but when it, something really hurts for somebody. And sometimes you see this malignant version of narcissism say, well, good. I think it, it should hurt because I don't like what you did. Aggression often comes out in aggression and interacting with other people. And then paranoia. It's really interesting. The malignant narcissists, uh, you can also find some tie-ins there to things like, even things like conspiracy theorists, people that are, you know, this heightened paranoia about the worry or potential threats, because then they are going to aggressively try to make sense of things and then make sure that there is, you know, this is a zero-sum game. Either I am right, which means you are wrong because we both can't share the same opinion, that paranoia, this heightened worry, and then with that malignant narcissism, then to really make someone else feel bad and, and put them down with that aggression and that interacting with other people. What's interesting too, and one of these days I need to do, I'll get more into things like psychopaths and, and sociopaths, but then also some of the other traits of that are in line with things like antisocial personality disorder. So someone with malignant narcissism will share a lot of those traits of antisocial personality disorder, which means that somebody with malignant narcissism could be more likely to experience legal trouble or even start getting involved in substance abuse disorders. Courtney talked about a small study that involved people with borderline personality disorder and those with malignant narcissism actually had a harder time reducing anxiety and gaining a better ability to function in day-to-day -day life than those people with borderline. And the, the call of the borderline, there's a, a pretty popular book that I have often kept on my shelf that's called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. But that yet malignant narcissism can actually have a harder time reducing anxiety than borderline. I came up with a couple of examples of just good old malignant narcissism. And it's interesting because uh, some of the ones I found, I did actually on one of these, I, I turned to chat GPT again, artificial intelligence for the win. One of the examples of malignant narcissism that, that, that chat GPT proposed was a political leader who is obsessed with power 
has a grandiose sense of self-importance, lacks empathy for others, and is willing to engage in unethical or even illegal behavior to achieve their goals. This leader may use their charisma and manipulative tactics to gain support from the public and maintain their grip on power, even at the expense of the well-being of the people that they govern. And, and I really do, not to get political, but I feel like a lot of people that are uh, maybe have more of those narcissistic traits or tendencies or emotional immaturity could find themselves in positions of power, especially political power, because, boy, not again, not wanting to, to get overly political, but there have been some political leaders that I have found to be very, very incredibly narcissistic to the point where books have been written about some of these political leaders and their narcissism. And from my chair as a person and, uh, who works with the narcissistic trait tendencies population, that when I watch someone say something in the moment and they say it, but and, and they immediately take a one-up position on everybody else around them, they don't take ownership of what they've done. And then uh, they move on to the next city or the next topic or the next subject. And now here's a completely different message. And again, no accountability anyway. Then I can start to look at this and say, oh, that is such the trappings of narcissism. But I remember a client of mine coming in one time and uh, who had no idea about what narcissistic traits or tendencies or personality disorder was. And they were referring to this political leader and they were saying, but the person said it. And, and what they said from a position of power and authority, so they wouldn't lie because they are a politician. And, oh, I remember having this a little bit of a pit in my stomach and mixed with an aha moment of, oh, man, yeah, what it feels like to be me is someone who works in this world of emotional immaturity and narcissism and sees, I feel clearly, some people that do not take ownership of things, even when they are in video and they are in print. But then to somebody else, they're trying to make sense of it. And they're saying, well, if they said one thing one time and another thing the other time, then there must be a reason because they wouldn't not tell the truth. As a matter of fact, there might even be a hidden code in there somewhere. And so that's where even some of the things like the paranoia and the conspiracy theories and that sort of thing come into play. So a couple other examples of the malignant narcissism, an abusive partner who uses their charm and charisma to control and manipulate their partner, isolating them from family and friends and gaslighting them into believing that their abusive behavior is justified. That kind of that siren song or clinical, these real common examples of just true narcissism. Because in that partner, the, the malignant narcissist may have this sense of entitlement, but then they also have a lack of empathy for their partner's feelings and they view them only as objects to be controlled or exploited for their benefit because that is how they get their sense of self, their narcissistic supply. Or, you know, you can see that if we're talking about this in politics, then it can also easily translate over into the business world and a successful business executive maybe who puts their interests and desires above those of their employees and they exploit and they manipulate things for their own gain. So this executive then would also lack empathy for the struggles or the concerns that their employees, the people that are literally doing the work to maybe make them the money, so that the leader is willing to engage in unethical or even illegal behavior to maintain their position or power or influence. And then what do they do? Then they gaslight, manipulate, uh, use manipulation tactics to deflect criticism and, man and maintain their image as a successful and admired leader. And I'll just kind of throw out there, boy, if you've ever uh, looked into the Theranos case, and there's a really good, there's a couple of good documentaries out there, but there's a series on Hulu about that. And that is where you, I feel like just uh, is such an example of that business executive who does things for their own benefit. That's all the time we have today. But thanks for joining me on this part two of two. And we've now covered these five types of narcissism. And if you want to hang on a little bit here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the first 20 or so minutes of episode one of Murder on the Couch with my daughter, Sydney. And it would mean the world if you would go subscribe, sign up, 
where you listen to podcasts on YouTube. And I just really appreciate the support and would love to get your feedback on those platforms as well. And uh, continue to send in your questions, your comments. I've got a lot of good stories and questions. So I want you to know the people that are sending those in. I, I, I love reading them and, and I love it. I heard they break my heart, but I appreciate the time and effort that people spend in sending me their ahas, their waking up, their stories, they laying them all out. I would love to do just a, a whole other podcast that's nothing but narcissist stories. I, I need to go find the name for that one and, and trademark that right away. But just keep sending those in because I, I see you, I hear you, I know the work that you're doing. You're on a path. Of, you went from, I didn't know, I did not know this. One of the ones I got last night and I, I she'll maybe know who this is, but she started off by, I'm looking at it right here. Hello. I know you've heard this a thousand times, but your Waking Up to Narcissism podcast has helped me walk through a very dark and difficult period of my life. She said, like you always say, you didn't know what you didn't know. And boy, I sure didn't know. And I just want her to know I read the whole thing while I was eating my, uh, my dinner last night. And at the end, it ends just so poetically with, and now I know what I didn't know, which I know is difficult, but I am grateful to even hopefully play a part of on that journey for people. So send me your questions, send me your comments, send me your stories, even if it's just from a therapeutic place for you to just express and get all this out because I will read them and I do see you. And I will also see you next, uh, next time I'm waking up to narcissism. Now stay tuned for murder on the couch. Sid. Hey, Dad. Uh, welcome to our. Well, no, 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 no. Are you kidding me right now? Are you I'm, I'm serious? The, I'm the pro. Do you care about this podcast at all? Uh, I've only done 400 other podcasts in my life. Uh, okay. Welcome back to. Welcome to. Okay, look at you, pro. Go, yeah, right? That's... Hey, everybody. Welcome to Murder on the Couch. I am your host. I think I'm the co host. We're both co-hosts. I think, but I like you being the host. Okay, I'm the host. This is your host, Sydney Overbay. And this is Tony Overbay. I'm so used to going into the whole spiel. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified mindful habit coach, all that stuff. And I'm a college dropout. But a world traveler, <laughs> nonetheless. Can you technically be called a dropout if you really kind of didn't attend? Right? Because it was during the whole COVID thing. That's true. I did attempt attending a couple times. Though. Did you really? So go? no. Okay. Well, yes, but no. Did you ever get on the zoom calls or anything for college? <laughs> I would bring my laptop into the car and then I would just drive around while the zoom was just playing. So you were attending technically. I was attending. Was that in your height of your DoorDash days? So were you, yeah. see, you were I was working. working. <laughs> she was working. She's working hard while she's going to school mm -hmm. and then just Never again. We're excited to bring you true crime meets therapy. Exactly. So you're going to get the insight of a therapist. A real life therapist. And the insight of someone who needs therapy. That's true. <laughs> so this is going to be really exciting. And then the format, which I am so excited about, is I am not going to prepare at all. So these stories are going to be new to me, which mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really excited about that. No, yeah. I have been doing so much research on this case. I've read every article. I've gone to every corner. And yeah. it's crazy. Okay. It's really insane. Because what are we talking about today? What's the case? We are going to be talking about the disappearance and then dismemberment of Abby Choi. If you're listening to 
this, please check out the YouTube version because there's so many videos. I feel like it really changes something when you put a face to the name. Also, what if it has like four views? That would be really humbling. So you should really go check it out. Okay, bye. Abby Choi was a mother of four, oh, wow. a social media influencer, a model, a socialite. She was so well known by everyone. Before we get into this case, yeah. I want to make a little disclaimer. Okay. I feel like a lot of the coverage on true crime that has been coming out lately is a lot more exploitative than informative, if that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of it is just like, oh, we want the gory details, you know, the shock factor. It's gross sometimes. Yeah. And I really don't want that to be what this podcast is about. Okay. I want this to be about the facts, about, in this case, Abby. Mm. And we're not romanticizing the killers or anything. That's not what this is going to be about. Yeah. But yeah, I've been waiting to tell you about this okay. for so long because it's been driving me crazy. Okay. And I like what you're saying. So then I don't have to prepare my over-the-top reactions then. Uh, you know, how, right? <gasps> what? Or I don't have to do any of those because I don't do that very well. No, okay. no, this is going to be real. This okay. is going to be real. Okay. Which, if that's the case, are you prepared for me to interrupt? Kind of like I just did there, but with uh, amazing therapeutic knowledge around. No. Okay. This is one of the fun things about me and my dad's conversations is nobody ever stops talking. No, we don't. We just interrupt each other back and forth <laughs> until the conversation. In like, the therapy world, I call out. it flow. Exactly. We're and, just, and when yes. people don't appreciate that, they call it annoying. But I like the flow vibe. Let's talk about the case. I want to give a little credit. I want to give a lot of credit to Stephanie Sue. She's a true crime YouTuber. She's like one of the biggest people yeah. out there right now. Not I, I enjoy people. those. You turned me on to her. Rotten Mango is the mm -hmm. name of her podcast. She goes to town on these cases and gives all of the articles that she used for research and stuff. So that really helped me with this. Mm -hmm. Credit to her. And we'll have links to some of the articles that you'll refer to in the show notes as well. I will be doing that, apparently. That's what you do. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Let's talk about Abby okay. first. Abby was born on July 11th, 1994 in Hong Kong. Can you do the math right now? 1994. When she disappeared, she was 28 years old. Okay. Super young. Yeah. She is the oldest of two sisters. So she has two younger sisters and she has four children four children she by 28 four children. Mm -hmm. wow. all of her friends and family have nothing but nice like everyone loves this girl she has such a genuine heart and a good spirit her current husband described her as and i quote okay kind-hearted and good person who always wanted to help others oh. hearing him talk about her was so sad but so sweet he was just saying how lucky his kids were to have her as a mother oh. she was from a very very wealthy family so she grew up very comfortable okay but she wasn't like a bratty rich kid in any way like she seemed to be the opposite of that. Mm. Her parents actually owned a huge construction business that ran throughout China. Wow. So she was very well known. Yeah. But like I said, she was not bratty at all. She was actually really, really giving. She was the co-founder of Hong Kong's, and I'm sorry if I pronounce anything wrong, Peomes Charitable Organization, which was an animal rescue organization. She's a good person. Having means, but then also still co-founding a charity for innocent animals. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like when somebody is nice to animals, it really says something about their character because there's nothing in it for you when you're nice to an animal, you know, yeah. like they're not going to be able to give you anything. So it just, it shows a lot of selflessness. Mm -hmm. I think one of her friends 
even tells a story about a time when they were walking down the road and they saw a very badly injured cat, like had just been hit by a car. He said there was flies around it and stuff Ooh. already. And Abby was like, no, nope, we are saving this cat. I don't care. Like wow. her friend was literally telling her like, that is a corpse. Like don't. Oh. And she said, no, I'm going to save this cat. And she did. And the cat is doing so much better now. Really? Okay. So you spent time, you volunteered at an animal shelter in Costa Rica for two months. Mm -hmm. Did you save any cats like that? I was attacked by cats. <laughs> <laughs> I was attacked by cats. I was attacked by rats. Bats. There were bats. There were bats. Dogs. <laughs> Dogs. But what was that like though? All of the volunteers yeah. that would come in and out, they were all such good people. Like mm -hmm. you, you don't really catch like a, a crappy person volunteering at an animal shelter. No, right. just yeah, like I what's in it for them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Just like I would presume you wouldn't catch a bratty rich person yeah. literally starting a charity for animals. Okay. First experience as therapists working with people that have money at times. One guy told me, and I thought this was so good. He said that money makes you more of whatever you are. So if you're a jerk, you become a bigger jerk. Mm. But if you're a kind person, then you're even more kind. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. So it sounds like she took the money and became even kinder and more charitable. She was also a very, very successful model mm. and influencer socialite is what they call it, I think, okay. online. And she worked hard at this. Okay. I, I was stalking her Instagram. Okay. Not in a creepy way, but... Sure. Research. Side note. I was thinking if I ever, not even wanting to put this into the universe, yes. but if I ever went missing, please use cute pictures of me, please. So that's what I, I was researching pictures of her on like the, like just regular images. And then I was like, if this were me, I would want people to use approved Sydney approved pictures. So I went onto her Instagram okay. and she's a hardworking model. Okay. Like it seemed like she was somewhere new, not even every week, like every other day mm. she was on runways. She was modeling for everyone featured in Vogue. She oh, was wow. featured in Elle. She was a regular attendee at Paris fashion week. Um, I can, I can say I have never been invited to attend <laughs> Paris fashion week. If that's what that says. <laughs> I wonder why. I don't yeah, know why. I don't that's, know. That's got lost in the mail. Yeah. I guess I've already done one uh, shout out for Stephanie Sue. How about one for Paris fashion? Week? <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. I'm going to be putting a lot of pictures on the screen right now just of her at all of oh. her shoots and stuff okay. because she looks amazing. She's so cool. One thing that just kept growing and growing as I was researching this case was my love for this girl. Yeah. Like okay. She's so cool. So this is one of my favorite looks that she did. I'm kind of excited to see this. They kept calling her a fashion icon. And at first I was like, fashion icon? Like, that's such a cringy word to say. <laughs> no, she is a fashion icon. She... Look at this look. She's literally... So cool. She's wearing like oh, she leg warmer boots. Like, I don't even know a Chanel little dress thing. And like, she is so cool. I want to be here. Look at her bag. Look at that bag. It's literally <laughs> a, like, it looks like a perfume bottle. It does. The things she's involved in designing are so sick. There's so many pictures of her with animals in nature, like doing arts and painting and drawing. Yeah. Like she was really, she just seemed really talented. She's living a life. Yeah. I'm probably going to cut this out. Okay. But there was this one picture that I found on her Instagram and look how she's sitting. I'm literally in oh, the, okay. I'm the only sit, sit. person that I know who sits like that. No, I'll put you, it up you, on the screen. Do. You must keep that in because I have, I've literally talked to your mom about how do you do that? Because I think I would pop every leg and tendon in my body doing that on a hard chair, no less. Mm -hmm. Knees of steel. <laughs> now, last February 14th, the middle March. of March right now. So oh, so not last, like last year, but this year, February 14th, yes. Valentine's Day. 
Valentine's Day just a few weeks ago. She posted her last Instagram post. And it was a repost of her on the cover of La Officielle magazine. I don't know. One of my favorites. (laughs) It's been featured there many times. And they titled her one of the most sought out influencers in the industry. So her career was booming. She was getting bigger and bigger every day. So she was 28. Yeah. Okay. Only 28 years old. There's a uh, theory. Some believe in psychology. Around 27 is when you start really taking off in life. Athletes are at their prime at 27. So I wonder if that's an influencer thing as well. So Mm. she's she's in her prime. Little did anyone know she would disappear just like 10 days after that. Wow. So first I'm going to take you to the crime scene before we really get into it. Okay. So this was February 24th. Police finally get enough information to go investigate. Abby's been missing for three days at this point. Oh, okay. So police go to investigate this creepy apartment on the bottom of three floors in Lung Mei Tswen, a seaside village in Hong Kong. Seaside. So I'm sure it was pretty nice. I would imagine. Yes, it was nice. It was like a very public, really popular area. Yeah. And immediately as the police pulled up, they knew that something was wrong because the house was so creepy. Okay. There were long black tarps covering all of the windows oh. and all of the entrances. Okay. Neighbors also had been sussed out for weeks before this. I know what that means. <laughs> they were suspicious. The neighbors said that they'd never seen anyone spend the night at this house, but they just Mm -hmm. kept seeing people kind of show up and leave. And they saw this old man who was just like chain smoking on the side. Okay. He looked stressed out, but nobody knew who he was at this point. Mm. So the police open the door and the floors are covered in plastic. That's not good. I mean, unless they're painting the ceiling. The ceiling was not being painted. I can confirm. Okay. The house was completely empty. So no furniture, no anything like that? Zero furniture. Okay. Now this is really creepy. As they walk deeper into the apartment, they are faced with what one article describes as a human butcher shop. Oh. Upon further investigation, police found Abby's remains not only in the fridge, but also cooked into two pots of soup. Oh, wow. With carrots and radishes. I don't even know what to say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing to say. Now, who would want to do this to such a kind, good-hearted mother of four? What if I told you that it was not only the father of her own two children, but his entire family? Oh. And not only that, but what if I told you this entire family was living under the roof of a luxury apartment that Abby bought them herself. Okay, I don't... I was already kind of stumped a few minutes ago, but I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't... Yeah, it's insane, all right? It it really is. They bought... She bought them the place they're living in. Yes. And then they not only murder her, and it was a month ago. I feel like the best way to understand this case is to start with Abby's ex-in-laws, the Kwong family. Okay. They are shady as fuck, let me tell you. Okay. But just laying it out first so you can kind of like get a feel for... a family tree almost? Yeah, a little family tree moment. So first we have Kwong Kwao. He is the father-in-law, the ex-father-in-law of Abby. And he's married to Jenny Lee. Okay. They have two sons together, okay? The oldest one's name is Anthony Kwong and Alex Kwong, and this is going to be Abby's ex-husband. Okay. I feel like to really understand this, we have to start 
all the way at the top mm -hmm. with Quang Quao. Yeah. So let's get into that. Now, this is her ex-father-in-law. So Ex-husband's dad. Okay. Yes. This is all the way back in the early 2000s. He was a former police sergeant okay. in the Hong Kong Police Department. And at this point, they were doing pretty well for their family, I believe. He loved this job, okay? He was obsessed with this job. It was his entire identity. He was good at it at first. <laughs> you could say good. Yeah. If that's the right word. He was awarded the Hong Kong Police Long Service Medal in 2001. Okay. I think he even got another medal at some point too. He was confident. He loved being a police officer. He loved the authority and most of all, he loved the power. Mm. And like there's a little foreshadowing maybe. Yes, definitely. It's crazy though. And I like the way that you laid it out because now my brain is going a million miles an hour of the whole family is involved. And now we're talking about a decorated police officer. Mm -hmm. Everything's going fine for Quang Kuo until 2005 when a woman walks into the police station, a okay. victim of a crime. She's in distress, obviously. He took a liking to her immediately and he felt connected to her for some reason, for whatever reason. And he was listening to her and really like making her feel like he cared okay. and like he cared about the case and getting her justice. Yeah. She actually felt very appreciative of this. I bet first. she felt safe, I would imagine. Yeah. Heard, seen. Okay. Mm -hmm which is so important in a situation like that. He's calling her outside of the investigation at this point and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she still thinks it's just for the investigation. Like he's that good of a police officer. Yeah. She goes home that night and she goes to sleep, finally thinks that someone's listening to her case. Everything's going great. And then she wakes up to a loud knocking on her door at like five or six in the morning, mm -hmm. which first of all, why are you knocking on my door at five Let's or six in the morning? She does answer the door though, okay. because it's police officer Quang Quao and yeah. already the power imbalance there. Of course she's going to answer the door, right? So she lets him in. He says it's for them investigation or whatever and he allegedly rapes her oh oh man in her own home okay so i have to say allegedly because he resigned immediately after this uh-huh so that there wouldn't be uh, an investigation? Charges were charges dropped. They were. Okay. Exactly. Like, and again, allegedly, hypothetically, there could have been a deal made or you quit and we let this thing go or who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But it's pretty suspicious that as somebody who was so in love with this job, yeah. it was his entire yeah. identity yeah. for him to resign immediately after. I don't know. It's just kind of suspicious to me. So ale alleged, but it seems a little fishy. Yeah. Very fishy. This was all the way in 2005. She had nothing to gain from condemning a police officer. Oh, I see. As a woman, I don't see what she would have gotten out of that. And just the fact that he didn't even try to defend it mm -hmm. when this job was his entire life is very suspicious oh, yeah. to me. So then all of a sudden he just quits. Yeah. He okay. quits. The one thing that gave him like character. Again, alleged, but I can only imagine what do you say that, yeah, I just ran over there at five in the morning. Yeah, exactly. To give her an update. Like you know? what update? Yeah. And it's like, waited. if he had one, then he would have had a defense. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. The abuse of power, by the way. I, oh my gosh. I mean, cause that, that stuff, when somebody's that vulnerable and open and then you trust and you feel heard and understood. And it, cause in my world of therapy, you get these things where people make claims against therapists and you get a monthly update and every therapist I think will go check out what the accusations are and they're almost always someone ended up having an affair or sex with their client Wow! Yeah, and they lose their license they get fined because it's like here's this person that is opening up and vulnerable and trusting you and then here's this therapist that's saying I feel a connection you know that's right the power imbalance yeah the power imbalance is bad is crazy like and just 
like to re-traumatize this girl who's that's, already been through something so traumatizing no, that's, that's to make level. her feel safe yeah and then to take advantage of that like yeah. it's absolutely repulsive i just i couldn't even believe that no that one's that is bad he resigns the charges are dropped and he basically just never tries to get a job again his life kind of just plateaus from okay. there he doesn't want a job he doesn't try to get one according to all the online records, uh -huh. it seems that he just felt as though he was entitled to the world, but he didn't have to work for it. I feel like there's has to be some form of narcissism oh. that runs through the Kwong family because yeah. they think they are gods. And yeah. it's like, bro, what? You literally assaulted someone. Wait, let's jump into the old therapy world because I work with, you know, this, the big population of uh, narcissistic personality disorder, people that struggle with that. And there's a concept called confabulation, which is the narcissist creating a new narrative of what really happened in real time so that it couldn't have been them. Mm -hmm. So that's where I feel like, you know, somebody might resign, but it isn't because they did anything wrong. It's because they are the ones people don't understand them. They go victim status, mm -hmm. yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah of that, course yeah. he wouldn't fight it because no. he knew that he would be wrong deep yeah. down. And, so and then why would he try to get a job when now he thinks everybody's against him? And, you know, what's he going to do? And it's just a way for that person to still justify their behavior. So four years of unemployment pass on his part. And then he becomes essentially Abby Choi's sugar baby. Hmm. Let me explain. Okay. In 2009, Abby Choi meets Alex Kwong. So this, she's about 15 then at this yes. point? Okay. She's 15 years old. He's also 15. Okay. And Alex Kwong is Kwong Kwao's son, okay. as we know. We can assume that Kwong Kwao was pretty excited when they met because Abby Choi was from a very, very wealthy family. Of course, we don't know like all the details and facts about that, but with what ends up happening, yeah. suspicious on his part and on Alex Kwong's part. So they stay together for three years and then they get married at age 18. Ooh, that's young. Mm -hmm. And then they pop out a baby within the same year when they were only 18 years old. Uh, so very, kids. very young marriage. Yeah. Um, never do that, anybody. Don't get married at 18. Do you know what how old your mom and I were? Oh, what? <laughs> she was 19. How dare you? <laughs> Hope she wasn't a child. Yeah, where no, are you going with that? I was 20, Sid. 20. Did you know that? No, I didn't actually. Yeah. No, we were, we thought. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. I just set in. I thought you were like 24, honestly. No, no. Wow. I was 20. She was 19. I had a... I say full head of hair. I had as much hair as I had ever had in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And, but we really did think we were old. Okay. I, no, I got it. If you're balding, marry young. Okay. Honestly, that is uh, the more, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> she, she was like, I caught her on my way down and her way up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you guys met in the middle, but then it was just, yeah, you were winning. Talk about power imbalance. Yeah. No, that was probably one of the, the greatest timing I've ever had. In my entire life, that and the first Black Friday where I ever got like a Nintendo when we went to Walmart, like at two in the morning, those two things are, are some of the greatest timing that I've ever had in my life. You did not just relate your marriage to the, Let me call mom. <laughs> no. Let's see what she has to say. Do you know how old I am right now? Ooh, 70? <laughs> okay. What? They have 70. <laughs> but yeah, so they got married at 18, though. So, I mean, that is, that's really, really young. He was really excited because Abby Choi's parents, they were very wealthy. And Abby was also wealthy herself. She ended up having a net worth of 